You are listening to History Man, the platform for historians, authors, and museum directors to tell their stories of the American Revolution. On today's episode, we are with Catherine Pemberton, director of The Powder Magazine in Charleston. Welcome, Catherine. Good morning. So before we get started, Catherine, and as you tell us a little bit about The Powder Magazine here in Charleston, I want to give a shout out to some of our affiliates. SouthernCampaigns.org specializes in the history of the Southern Campaigns of the American Revolution. Long Gone LLC on Facebook specializes in genealogical research and battlefield interpretations in Camden, South Carolina. So, Catherine, I tell you what, we got down here to Charleston, and they don't call it the holy city for nothing. I mean, you just get in here from a historical standpoint. I think I mentioned this. It's kind of a cornucopia of history in in America, isn't it? It absolutely is. There are so many layers here. It's it's really fabulous. The the built environment that we have here really goes from the 18th century through the 20th century. We've got buildings, sites, structures, and it's it's all just kind of wrapped up in a very accessible area. So it's a very dense historic district and, and wonderful to explore. I think you'd be interested to know that we have listeners in all 50 states and 30 countries. And so not everybody is going to know the layout of Charleston and how Charleston was formed, how South Carolina was formed. Uh, what, an, what an interesting time in this episode to talk about the founding of Charleston, the Lord Proprietors, what Charleston looked like, how the powder magazine fell into the, the plans of the original Charleston. So I'm looking forward to hearing from yes, hearing about it. Well, that's, that's one of my particular, uh, particular passions and interests is the early city. And I guess, you know, for, for anyone who doesn't know, Charlestown was founded in 1670 by a group of, of mainly English settlers. They were sent here by eight lords proprietors. So this was not a, a colony based on religious freedom. Uh, it was really a business colony. The eight lords proprietors had been granted Carolina, basically from Virginia into Spanish Florida and then just west. <laughs> so this was like a, uh, a, a kind of a compact between the British government and private entities or private enterprises to colonize the southern area of the New World. It absolutely was. It was a, it was a private endeavor. Um, the eight lords proprietors basically owned the land between Virginia and Florida, they thought. Of course, there were competing land claims. But King Charles II really granted it to them because of their assistance during the English Civil Wars. He regained the throne uh, in, in some measure to, and owed a debt to these men. They really looked at Carolina as a place to make money. Lord Anthony Ashley Cooper, later Earl of Shaftesbury, had some grand sort of government-making ideas, which he and his secretary, John Locke, kind of coalesced into the fundamental constitutions of Carolina. So Let me that, stop you right sure. there. John Locke. Is John the, this Locke. the uh, Scottish Enlightenment John Locke? Yes, this is a young John Locke. Very good. He worked as a secretary to one of the Lord's proprietors, Anthony Ashley Cooper, and that's how we get our Ashley and Cooper River names. I gotcha. He was sort of the lead proprietor, and he called Carolina my darling. He was probably a little more invested on an emotional level in Carolina, but for most of them, this was a place to make money. Mm -hmm. And so they sent colonists here 
it really is a business colony. So here they are, they're 400 miles from Virginia. They're much closer actually to the Spanish and the very chaps of the Spanish, they said. And before they could really be successful at making money, they had to worry about defense and subsistence. So the original colony settlement was about five miles up the Ashley River at what's now Charlestown Landing. So that was our settlement site. I think it would be important before we get into the actual settlement site uh, to talk about how far these land grants extended for these Lord proprietors, mm -hmm. knowing that there were competing uh, nations for this new world, including Spain, as you said, down mm -hmm. in Florida, and France. Who, to uh, the west. To the west. Yeah. But the king decided that he's going to at least put on paper that he was going to claim from the coast all the way to where? For, and, and gave gave the Lord proprietors, how, how far west would you go? Potentially, you know, as far west as it went. They didn't know. Um, so, you know, some of the tour guides today will joke that Parts of California and New Mexico were originally technically Carolina. That was a pretty big affrontery of the king to claim all that, wasn't <laughs> it? It was, but you know, it, it really comes down to who's going to be, with all these competing land claims, who's going to successfully occupy and defend the land okay. is what it comes down to. All right. And so you're only going to be able to occupy and defend you know, small amounts at a time. So the Carolina colony is really honed in on what's now Charleston and then kind of spreads out from there. What, um, what were the, uh, the real threats at that time when they first occupied this area? I think the Spanish were the major threat. Okay. Um, I think it's no accident, actually, if you've ever been to St. Augustine and you've seen their wonderful Castillo de San Marco, which is made out of the, the stone fortification that they have there. It's begun construction in 1672 when the English are landing here in 1670. So there's, there's fear on both sides. And early on, you know, depending on if England is at war with France or Spain or both, you might have a ramp up in the Carolinians going down to St. Augustine, which they did in 1702, laid siege to the Castillo, burned the town when they couldn't take the Castillo. So they sacked St. Augustine, came back to Charleston in 1706, four years later, the combined French and Spanish fleet are sailing into Charleston Harbor to take Charleston. So the American Revolution was not the first time that anyone had laid siege to the town of Charleston. No, and the 1706 siege wasn't, it wasn't a big event. I think the, the visual from the water of uh, the walled city, that giant brick fortification along the water, probably did about as much to deter an invasion as anything. <laughs> There, it was sort of a, there was a lot of bluster and, and some skirmishes, but it, it really did its job. So when you come to Charleston now, you talk about those fortifications that were imposing as people would come into the harbor. They're not They're there not anymore. They're not there anymore, are they? <laughs> right. No, exactly. I mean, so you're saying, uh, prior, as we got ready for this episode, you're saying that Charleston was made in a walled city. Exactly. Was so. like the only, the original walled city in Mm -hmm. The Americas, or, or well, 
Spain had a walled city and okay. St. Augustine uh, with, um, you know, around the Castillo and surrounding the town. Charlestown was the only English walled city in North America. And then the other major one is really Quebec, which is French in what's now Canada. And so those are kind of the three. And when we say walled cities, we mean a completely encircled walled city, not just fortifications like Wall Street in New York, but those completely encircled fortifications, walled cities with a drawbridge, with moats. With, you had a drawbridge. We had a drawbridge in Charleston, exactly. So, you know, the, you had ramparts, or you yes, had, and, entrenchments, um, and earthen and and wooden walls on three sides, um, and a brick seawall and curtain wall with bastions on the water side. So it was a pretty major affair. As I was telling you, um, the British really settled here in 1670, about five miles away from here on what's now Charlestown Landing State Park, Albemarle Point. Within 10 years, they've moved to the peninsula of what's now Charleston, and they've set up a walled city on about 62 acres of high ground, sort of shoehorned in between two creeks to the north and south, and they've started construction of a wall. So by the 1690s, they've really focused in on building the harborside brick wall, which was about 7 million bricks. There are bastions, on uh, to the north and south with redans or triangular outworks in between, all connected by a curtain wall and a center half-moon battery where the old exchange building is today. That's really the main part of the walled city. The other three sides were, were made of earth and wood, and they were temporary fortifications because the city, they knew that they would expand the city geographically, but as a temporary somewhat economical but effective measure of defense, they would dig a trench, take that earth, and build a wall. So in one step, you've, you've doubled your area that an attacker is going to have to traverse. And when, you're, when you don't need those earthen walls anymore, it's a pretty simple measure just to push them back into the ditch. And, but all of this, the corner bastions, the redans, the half-moon battery, all of these were mounted with cannon, so it provided protection against a naval assault on the east, but it also provided protection from any kind of inland invasion uh, with the drawbridge providing you know, communication with the back country for goods and people to come in from the land side. So what years are we talking about here by the time it was completed? So really we think that the walls are, are being stored in the 1690s, certainly by 1711, they're complete, and they last into the 1720s. Over time, and in a very sort of fragmented, ad hoc way, those earthen walls come down over, over time as the city expands. The brick wall along the waterfront over what's now East Bay Street is actually on the landscape until after the American Revolution which is strange, but it's brick infrastructure you don't just get rid of overnight. We know that certainly by the time of the American Revolution, landfill had occurred in front of those fortifications where docks and wharves had been put in. So if you're commerce. in Charleston, you're talking about Rainbow Row, right? right? Where it's kind of one of those iconic mm -hmm. places in Charleston. 
you have the road in front of Rainbow Road, then you have the battery walk right there. Right. When you're talking about the fortifications, that's where the fort the river came all the way up to the that battery came, right there. The river came all the way up to East Bay Street. Okay. And so if you were a merchant on Rainbow Row in the 18th century, and if you looked out your window from Rainbow Row, on the other side of the street, you would see fortification wall, but then later you would see docks and wharves and ships. Because they that's started where the river was. adding, they, right. they started filling in the, the river right there. About midway through the 18th century, defense concerns kind of give way to commerce okay you know so commerce becomes really more important than defense so wharves and docks are kind of put what we would call in front of the fortifications to the east as they silted up and filled naturally more docks and wharves were pushed out and then they filled in man-made and on purpose so there was an awful lot of landfill to the east of those that original brick wall. But the brick wall stayed on the landscape until the 1780s. There's a newspaper ad in the South Carolina Gazette in 1785 that says, for sale, two bastions and a redan on the bay. Um, really? And so they're selling the brick fortifications out of public ownership into private ownership in the 1780s. But by the, by the time of the American Revolution, those fortifications were so landlocked, they, were really in, they wouldn't have been effective during the American Revolution. They were already sort of useless as fortifications, but they were still on the landscape until the 1780s. The earthen walls disappear much earlier, but those brick walls stay up into the 1780s. Well, how does the powder magazine fit into all this history and leading up to the revolution? The powder magazine, so we've got this only English walled city in North America. The powder magazine is the oldest public building in the Carolinas or Georgia. So it was built in 1713 to really store gunpowder, uh, which people think, well, what's so important about that? Gunpowder is the engine of war, right? So everything runs, other than a, than a bayonet, everything runs off gunpowder. It's an incredibly important commodity. So were so, they making their own gunpowder around here? No, and they're really dependent on gunpowder from other places. And especially from what we understand, French gunpowder was far superior to English gunpowder. But this place is important very early on for gunpowder storage. It's a community store of gunpowder. So the building is built with very, very thick walls. And the walls are about three feet thick at the base. As they come up into the, into the arches and vaults, they get thinner. So with the 10,000 pounds of gunpowder stored in here at any given point, to make sure that there isn't a catastrophic explosion and damage. They built this really incredibly thick building. And as I said, that there were weak points at the arches. So if there was an internal explosion, it would generate up through the ceiling with about 4,000 pounds of sand in the ceiling designed to come down and tamp down any kind of flames. But everything in the powder magazine was well thought out as far as wooden floors with pegs rather than nails because people had shoes that were nailed so you didn't want a, a nail in your shoe setting off 
a spark and exploding everything. The Even the gunpowder barrels had metal stays that are bronze or copper to minimize uh, spark. Everything in there was to minimize an internal explosion. And obviously it's a very stout building too, so it was designed to, to withstand an external assault as well. The placement of the powder magazine inside the walled city was towards the northwest corner of the walled city, about as far as you could get away from that colonial waterfront as you could. So the idea being that if, if we're being invaded by the Spanish and they're shooting into the walled city, the powder magazine's not gonna be in the line of fire. Now, as the city grew and expanded, those, those uh, landside walls tend to come down in the 1720s, the whole city's really moving and expanding. So by the mid 18th century, the powder magazine, instead of being on the edge of town, away from cannon fire, is now in the center of town. What Residences it, and churches all around it. Sounds like that would have caused some problems for planners and especially when war came around again. Right, well, even in the mid 18th century, people were petitioning to have the powder removed from the building because they said, you know, a, a lightning bolt would mm. destroy us all, <laughs> you know? And so please move the powder. So the powder magazine was decommissioned. Other powder magazines were constructed. And so for a long time, this is, this is sitting empty until the American Revolution comes around and it's recommissioned once again as a powder storage. Wasn't there a story about someone dying as a result of an explosion at a powder magazine in Charleston? Yes, and I believe that's after the British take the city okay. in May of 1780. There is at the new powder magazine. So it's not this one? Not this one. Okay. This is the old powder magazine, but the new powder magazine on Magazine Street, um, okay. not too far away. Um, but to our west was was constructed, and that's where a lot of uh, powder and arms were being kind of carelessly stored. And I think people, the soldiers, were apparently chucking what they thought were unloaded muskets and and arms into a pile, and there was a giant explosion, and it and it killed about 150 people, as far as I understand. Wow. That was a, a giant mess with gunpowder, but not here. As you walk up to the powder magazine here in, in uh, Charleston, mm -hmm. right off of Cumberland Street, which was not around during the Revolutionary War, was it? Well, Cumberland Street, I think, had been put into place, I think, by the American Revolution, but okay. it had been, a, but I think, in the second half of the 18th century, okay. Cumberland Street what becomes Cumberland Street's laid out. You were telling me that the actual walled part over here on this side of the walled city of Charleston mm -hmm. is actually underneath the parking garage right across the street from right. the powder magazine. Right. How cool is that? And when you when you look at the powder magazine when you first arrive, you'll notice that the the front wall of the powder magazine does not align with Cumberland Street. It's at an angle. Okay. And that's because of the fortification was at that angle. And then Cumberland Street comes in later, so there's a disconnect, obviously, because the powder magazine is older than the street. 
But yeah, we do think that that northern wall between the powder magazine and the creek that became the city market, that that line of, of earthen fortification is now under the county parking garage, <laughs> unfortunately. Okay. Um, so the creek itself, you say is on Market Street. Is that why Market Street floods all the time? Yes, absolutely. And then you have the on the other side of the walled city, you have another creek that was filled in and that became water street it did it did Isn't that interesting so they sort of shoehorned in this this walled city in between these two major creeks using the sort of natural elements that were already there as additional means of defense which i think was really smart and on the west line which is now present-day meeting street they just kind of connected everything up and at the center of that what's now meeting street earthen wall, they centered a drawbridge at what's now the corner of Meeting and Broad, which we call our Four Corners of Law. Um, okay. And the Four Corners of Law, if you ask Charlestonians today, they will say that's the center of town. But between the 1680s and the 1720s, that was the edge of town. So you can, you can get a sense of how much the city's grown and expanded over time. But Within the walled city, you know, our fortifications are basically off the landscape. The powder magazine is all that remains above ground of this great early walled city fortification system. Underneath the exchange building at the other end of Broad Street from, you know, opposite the, the drawbridge, underneath the exchange building, there's one piece of the half moon battery, or the, that brick fortification in the basement that the public can still see. But for the most part, it's not on the landscape anymore. And I think Charlestonians and visitors and most people don't know about the walled city because it's not on the landscape. Right. And right. it's easy to kind of skip over, right. but we're trying really hard to bring more attention to the walled city because it was foundational. When you visit the area where the walled city was today, you'll see a much more dense area of construction. It reminds visitors of kind of a, an English walled city or a European walled city. Houses close together, you mentioned Rainbow Row, that tight-knit kind of construction of Rainbow Row is part of the legacy of that walled city. So tell us a little bit about what people will see when they come to the museum here. I know that there's two huge cannon out in front of it. Uh, right. I know the guys or the, the boys that come up, the school children. I'm sure the boys just love that. Y'all were telling me that even the girls, when they start understanding uh, some of the stories behind the cannon crews, that they understand that, you know, they, they get excited about that too. You come into the museum, there's a diorama of the walled city and some of the other history whether it be pirates or the Lord proprietors or, or whatever, that's all part of this small little museum that is just filled with all sorts of history. Tell us a little bit about what the visitors will see when they come. Well, um, we really focus on the 18th century in Charleston and try and tell the story, not only of the, the early colonial, because this is a very early colonial building in 1713, we take it all the way through the American Revolution. Um, and so everything that happens in the 18th century, and that's really our mandate from the organization who owns and operates the museum, and it's the National Society of Colonial Dames in America in the state of South Carolina. That's a and long name. It is a long name, but the, the dames in South Carolina purchased the building 
1902 and very quickly opened it to the public as a, as a historic site. It was really the first historic site in the city to be open to the public. So it was a really early preservation success. But they realized that it had quite a story to tell. You know, it's been witness to everything that's happened in Charleston throughout, you know, the three centuries and more. But yeah, we, we focus a lot on military history. Obviously, it was a military building. And so we talk about the, the Yemisee Wars. We talk about the Walled City. We talk about the, um, the Stoner Rebellion as well um, as the, the uh, French and Indian Wars and all that. But we, we also do it within a context of what's going on in colonial Charleston and colonial South Carolina because it's a fascinating story that we think kind of gets skipped over. The cannon, well, this was actually uh, the capital city. Of, it of was South the capital Carolina. city, yeah, and it's, it's the really a, it's sort of a city state in a way. Mm-hmm. The city of Charleston isn't really uh, officially founded until the seventh after the American Revolution, right. so it's not um, it's not founded, you know early on it's the capital city but it it's really tied into south carolina more than it's just its own little city but the cannons that you mentioned outside are um revolutionary war cannon they're 12 pounders um they're british and they have the mark of king george the third on top as well as the broad arrow which signified the property of the king and they were Interesting, they were naval cannon. They were probably used during the siege of Charleston in 1780. And we know they were reused during the American Civil War by the Confederacy. It points out, I think, how much of a need for ironwork there was in the Confederacy that they had to reuse mm-hmm. old cannon like they did. But they, they modified them and reused them during the defense of Charleston in the mid-19th century, they were spiked or put into the ground um, business end first, probably during the Confederate retreat out of Charleston, the evacuation in 1865. The dames acquired the cannon. They were located up near the visitor center and they brought them down to the powder magazine and they've been on display almost since the very beginning of the museum. Mm. They guard our entrance. <laughs> mm. Okay. Well, this is a fascinating uh, story, and the Powder Magazine has so much history in the state of South Carolina and the country as a whole. I would like to ask you uh, a quick question that I try to ask all my historians and all my guests on my podcast. What does liberty mean to you? Well, it's a, it's a great question, and I think, you know, there are so many so many ways to approach it. It's sort of like, what is love? <laughs> I think there are probably many, many definitions. The thing that, that comes to my mind uh, right away is the, it's freedom, um, but it's not just an uncontrolled freedom or, you know, just, uh, you know, it's not chaos and it's not anarchy, but it's the freedom for a people not just individuals, but for a people, a collective people, to make their own way and to control their own destiny, I think. And that's the definition of liberty comes out of the American Revolution with Mm -hmm. that, I would argue, greatest generation of patriots who kind of 
begin the American experiment um, in democracy. Well, tell us a little bit about some of the annual events you have going on here. We um, generally have uh, have always hosted a great deal of school children. That's been somewhat pulled back in the last couple of years with the pandemic, but we um, we have a number of events kind of on our usual calendar. We have lecture series. Um, we're going to have a Zoom lecture series coming back up in the spring, probably in May. We have a annual trivia, Charleston trivia contest that'll be coming up in February of this year. We just completed a Colonial Charleston Teacher Institute because education is our big mission here at the Powder Magazine and for the Colonial Dames in general, education, preservation, and patriotic service are kind of our, our watchwords. And so the Colonial Charleston Teacher Institute that we just finished in conjunction with the College of Charleston uh, for teacher recertification was something that was really great and we're hoping to do that every year, either in the summer or the fall. But people can kind of keep up with us, our lectures, our events, anything that we've got going on through our website at powdermagazine.org. It's the end of the year, so this is always our time that we encourage people to donate to kind of keep colonial history alive in the state of South Carolina and certainly there's that donate button we've just finished giving Tuesday but we're always kind of encouraging donations especially through the end of the year we're on social media you can find us on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and kind of keep up with everything that we've got going on Catherine thank you so much you're welcome it's been a pleasure